Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18 as we continue our series through the old gospel stories. Of course, these stories point to the truth about Jesus Christ, faith in Him and life in Him. And so we find these shadows and echoes of Him all throughout the Old Testament. And we'll pick up and find that very same theme here in 1 Kings chapter 18. So here now as God speaks to us through his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you and I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this evening expecting and even desiring a word from you. Lord, we do come before you wanting you to speak to us. And so, Lord, we come and ask you to do exactly that. May you speak to us through the word of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Students, I know that most of you knew, at least know now, what takes place 
on Thursday, what took place on Thursday of this week. Um, I'm sure many of you and your families had feasts, meals for Thanksgiving, right? You had turkey and cranberry sauce and all of those other foods you have to act like you like. <laughs> well, I hope you know that Thursday also marked another significant day in the life of Christian history. It was the 450th anniversary of John Knox, the Scottish reformer's death. Now, if you know anything about John Knox, he was a man truly hated in his own time. His personality was repugnant to the ruling powers. His reforms were detested by the Roman Catholic Church, and his preaching was offensive to that old order in Scotland. On one occasion, after hearing of a potential royal marriage between uh, Queen Mary and several other candidates, which were not friendly to the Reformed faith, he heard of this, this whole plot that was being done by the Scottish nobility, many of whom were actually in his congregation. And so he got up to preach that day after hearing of this union and said courageously to these nobility, but this, my Lord, will I say, whensoever the nobility in Scotland professing the Lord Jesus Christ shall be head to your sovereign, ye do so far as ye lieth to banish Christ Jesus from this realm. Ye bring God's vengeance upon the country, a plague upon, and a perchance ye shall do small comfort to your sovereign. John Knox didn't fear. Now, there were times in John Knox's life that he did fear. Uh, but here he got up to speak boldly, courageously, with conviction and courage, not holding back, not caring what they would think, but he spoke the truth to power. Well, in so many ways, Knox just steps into a tradition of prophets and preachers from centuries that taught the truth, that didn't hold back when God had commanded them to speak his word. And we find that coming back all the way to even the prophet Elijah. Elijah was truly a man well hated in his own time. And we see here in this passage in 1 Kings 18, his courage, his conviction. And of course, we know as chapter 19 makes clear, Elijah is a complicated man. Sometimes he does have his falls. But we see very clearly a story of victory present in this passage as Elijah confronts the 450 prophets of Baal for this epic showdown for the ages. And so as we begin to study this passage, I want to simply alert you to three aspects of Elijah's ministry that we find in this chapter. First, we will look at the context of Elijah's ministry. Second, we will look at the message of Elijah's ministry. And then thirdly, and finally, we will look at the triumph of Elijah's ministry. So first, the context of Elijah's ministry. If you're a fan of football at all, you'll, you'll know that um, it's, it's quite common for players to be hyped up that had never played before. Perhaps it's a, a, it's a draft, and they get picked early on in the draft, and there's all of this media hype giving them attention, 
um, gaining all of these expectations for the fans to see how this player will perform. And then you might be surprised, occasionally from time to time, a coach might sit that player on the bench. Um, you can think about the player Patrick Mahomes, who was the 11th overall pick of the draft. And he was sat on the bench for an entire year before he ever played a game of football. It's often necessary times of preparation. Uh, Of course, that applies maybe to the sports world, but even more so to the world of ministry. And that's what we find in chapter 17 and, of course, here in 18, that Elijah needed preparation. The first three years of Elijah's life, he was sitting on the bench Uh, He was marked by a relative obscurity. He wasn't known by anyone. And you might read later this evening, uh, 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 1 Kings 17, and scratch your head thinking, why is the man of God being fed by ravens, being cared for by a widow, uh, hiding out for this three-year period after this drought and and famine has entered the land where God's people need a prophet to be public and in the face of attention. Why is he just sitting back quietly? Well, we know it's because the Lord commanded him to do this. And it's the pattern of Scripture that God will often deal with a man before he puts them in his service. Joseph was sold into slavery and thrown into prison before he became a safe haven for his family. Moses had to flee to Midian and encounter the Lord in a burning bush ever before he would lead God's people out of Egypt. Even the Lord himself remained in relative obscurity for the first 30 years of his life before he had any public ministry. The Lord saw it fitting that he demonstrate his obedience privately and before he would do so publicly. But that all changes here in verse 1 of chapter 18. The Lord gives this word to Elijah to go public with his ministry. Notice with me verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And just to kind of enter you into the story, Um, King Ahab, one pastor called him the vilest toad to ever squat on the throne of Israel. He was a wicked man. His idea of reform was getting rid of all of the prophets that were truly faithful to the Lord and erecting all of these altars to Baal and Asherah. Uh, He was a man who was controlled by his wife Jezebel who was hunting after all of these prophets, making sure that old way of life was cast to the side in Israel. And if you know anything about the worship of Baal, it was a religion that was deeply concerned with nature. It was deeply in tune with nature that, that if Baal was pleased, then you could have confidence that you would have crops that would grow, that you would have children And so this whole religion is constructed around manipulating a God into giving you what you want. And this was the religion in the the time of Israel here. This is what people were being uh, led astray after. They were going after Baal and King Ahab was facilitating that with his wicked wife Jezebel. 
And so what do we see occurring here? And, and you can look at even verses five through six, what Ahab is doing in this time of famine while people are going thirsty and hungry in the land. What is Ahab doing? This will give you a picture of what this man is like. Verse five, and Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Ahab is not concerned with the people. He's concerned with his own animals. He wants to make sure that they have life and vitality. He doesn't care that the land is in turmoil. He doesn't care that the the economy has collapsed. He just cares about himself. And this is exactly what Moses warned the people of God about if they went after a king, that the king would only be concerned for himself. And that was Ahab. He was a vile toad of a man. Uh, But this sets the stage for Obadiah, another man that we find early on in this narrative. Obadiah, who is this faithful man that we see in verse 3, he fears the Lord greatly. Obadiah, who was somehow in Ahab's administration, yet he didn't buy into all that Ahab had professed. He was a faithful Israelite, a faithful Jew found in this wicked circumstance. And Obadiah is sent by Ahab to go looking for water for these animals, and he just so happens to stumble upon Elijah. You see that here in verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And really, uh, verses 7 through 15 uh, describe this conversation that takes place between Obadiah and Elijah. Obadiah hears that Elijah wants to go straight to Ahab and speak to him. And Obadiah says, hold on one moment. Are you really thinking that it's going to be a good thing that you go before King Ahab? Don't you know that there is an international manhunt for you? That King Ahab is going to all these nations in the surrounding area, making sure that you're not hiding out in one of these countries. You do know that Ahab wants your life. And so we see the, the, the doubt of Obadiah wondering why this Elijah man who is is three years in hiding now in his craziness saying, take me to Ahab. Well, you see in verse 15 where Elijah gets that strength, that courage. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. See, Elijah tells Obadiah, don't worry about it. I'm going to show myself to Ahab. You don't have to worry about getting in trouble, first of all. But second of all, I know whom, whose service I am in. He says it so clearly. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. This is the source of Elijah's confidence. He takes his marching orders from a higher sovereign, a sovereign who is far greater than little King Ahab. He knows that in his service, he is protected. He is kept safe, that he is unable to be destroyed or defeated without his Lord's permission. 
And friends, I wonder if you find yourself in a place where this kind of courage is needed. Certainly not everyone is called like Elijah to go speak the truth to power, to go speak before kings. But maybe more often we find ourselves in the place of Obadiah, who, who lived in this wicked culture and lived faithfully, yet had his fears, had his doubts. May we even think upon Elijah who says so clearly that it's before the Lord whom we stand. And that's where we might find our confidence and courage. And so we see the context of Elijah's ministry. It's a context that requires preparation and great courage. Now let's turn to the message of Elijah's ministry. Elijah knew his times. He knew the message that was needed for that spiritual hour in Israel. And so he comes before the king, and you see this in verse 17, and he speaks right to him. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The state of things was so backwards in Israel that Elijah is the terrorist, Elijah is the true troubler of Israel. That's the perspective of Ahab and those who followed after Baal. Here, Ahab is saying to Elijah, look, you are causing all of the trouble in this land. And Elijah pulls back the curtain and he shows him, it's not me. It's not me who is the troubler of Israel. It's you. You see that courage and confidence in this message And he's really calling Ahab to repentance. You are causing the issues that are found here in Israel. You are the reason why the land has been shut up and is in a famine. That there's no water on this land. It's because of you, Ahab. And so here, Elijah brings this message of repentance, not only to King Ahab, but it's really for Israel, all of Israel to see Look at verse 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so the stage is set for the great showdown that Elijah is preparing for here. He's saying to Ahab, okay, let's deal with the problem of religion in Israel once and for all. And you see this discourse take place here in verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if, it, if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. You see, Elijah is making his point very clear. There is no neutrality here. You can't. Sit back and think, oh, I can follow Baal and I can follow the God of Israel. He's saying, you can't keep limping back and forth. And I love that picture there. It's, it's an injured man going from one side to another, trying to decide but never coming to a conclusion. Elijah is saying to Israel, quit it. Quit going back and forth. Either it's God or it's Baal. There is no room for neutrality here. 
Perhaps some of you are familiar with the movie Silenced, uh, which is a, it's a brutal story about these Jesuit missionaries that went to Japan in the 18th century. And you, you see the brutal opposition that uh, takes place uh, against these missionaries. And there's this one particular character in that film um, that is a man who is limping between two different opinions. He's pressured to recant his faith uh, at risk of his life, and so he does it. But then he goes back to the priest to ask for forgiveness. And you see this all throughout the film, five, six times, of him going back and forth because clearly he feared his life more than he feared the Lord. And that's what Elijah is trying to get after here. You can't go limping between two different opinions. It's either the Lord or it's Baal. And so here he is setting this dichotomy and he wants to test the absolutism of that time. And so you see in the next following verses where the prophets of Baal are propositioned, create an altar. If fire comes down from heaven upon this altar, then your God is to be worshipped. Your God is to be feared. If it doesn't, he is to be rejected. But if I build an altar to my Lord, the one true God of Israel, then he is to be feared if the fire comes down from heaven. And you can see how they attempt to get this, uh, to, to, to make this happen. Verse 20, 26, and they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And perhaps right there is the godliest sense of sarcasm that we find all throughout Scripture, and maybe even in our own lives. Elijah is mocking them, saying, What's wrong with your God? Either he's sleeping or he's on the toilet. Either he's just hard of hearing. What's going on with your God? They keep crying out, yet no one responds. They cut themselves, yet nothing happens. But then contrast that with how Elijah offers up his sacrifice. Look at verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the Lord, word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And then you get this picture of Elijah taking the most precious commodity in the land, water, taking jars full of water and pouring it on his altar. The very opposite of what creates fire. Everyone knows that. And he does this not just once, not just twice, but three times. And he's trying to prove a point. It's not by my effort. It's not by my strength, my wisdom, that fire is going to come down from heaven, but it's only the power of the one true God that can bring down this fire. And so here we see the very clear message of Elijah to the people. 
Only God is to be trusted. Only God is to be feared, and they must repent. Elijah is ultimately concerned with only two things, the glory of God and the repentance of his people. And you see this expressed in his prayer in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Such a different prayer. Such a different confidence. His confidence isn't in himself. His confidence is that the Lord will answer. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. So that your people know that you are the true God. That it becomes such an indisputable fact that no one could even question it. Make it clear. Make your glory known in this land. And so Elijah Praise this prayer of confidence. And so we've seen the context of Elijah's ministry, the message of his ministry, and then finally we'll spend the last few moments looking at the triumph of his ministry. Perhaps you remember a few years ago, all the talk of town was between an M&A fighter and a boxer for this big $450 million fight that was going to take place. I remember I was in college and everybody was talking about this, this big fight between, between Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather, um, that it was going to be this incredible showdown for all the ages for everyone to watch. And I remember tuning into it and within the first 15 seconds or so, you could tell that the other fighter, Floyd Mayweather, who was a boxer, clearly had the upper hand. That really, Conor McGregor had no chance of even bringing a threat to Mayweather. And that's really the thing that we see here. Though the prophets of Baal boast themselves of all their power and prestige and, and their glory, they really don't have even a chance when it comes to competing with the one true God. And you see this here clearly in verse 38 in this triumph of God's victory. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized him and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So who wins? It's clear that Baal didn't win. You see, the Lord's power was so great that it licked up every last drop of water on that altar. All of that water Elijah poured on it time after time after time. The fire of the Lord was so powerful that it drained it dry. And so the people could see with their very own eyes that the Lord, he is God, not Baal. It's the Lord who is God. And Elijah sends out for these prophets, sends for their death, and shows that this kind of blasphemy is no longer to be tolerated in the land. 
And we won't look at the last few verses. Uh, but the significant part that the, the narrative is saying here in verses 41 through the end of the chapter is that after three years of the drought and famine in the land, the Lord is restoring the land. Uh, he is sending down rain because Baal could never do it. The Lord withheld that water, showing that Baal was utterly powerless when it came to bringing what they needed in their lives. It's only the Lord who can bless his people. And by all accounts, Elijah would have expected a revival to take place in the land. And that people would fall down on their knees and worship the one true God. That Ahab would turn away from his wicked ways. That Jezebel would give up on her sinfulness. But that doesn't happen as we see quite clearly in chapter 19. That it makes Jezebel all the more angry. And so she wants Elijah's head all the more. And this points for us to an ultimate victory. See, Elijah never got to experience that true, full sense of victory over darkness, over the evil powers of his time, uh, because they would emerge once more. Uh, but Elijah does eventually see that victory. You might remember in the reading through the Gospels on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was it that was with Jesus on that mountain it was Elijah and Moses. You see, Elijah got to see the one in whom the Father is well pleased. He got to listen to the one in whom all the glory, glory of God dwells in bodily form. And he got to talk with Jesus about this exodus, about this departure that Jesus was going uh, to do. And it's in that exodus that we see the true and final and full victory that Elijah once looked for. It's in that victory that Jesus goes to another mountain, the mountain of Calvary, and he disarms the evil powers of this age. He defeats Satan. He conquers death. And he's buried in the grave, not for just one day, not for just two days, but for three days. Showing that God has power over even the grave. And so that's a victory that Elijah was looking for. That the Lord Jesus Christ would be vindicated. That he would be raised to the right hand of the Father. And he would exercise dominion over all creation. And so it's in Christ that we have those floodgates of mercy opened upon us, that ultimate victory, that fullness showered down upon us. And so we can say with Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we do have the victory in Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray and come before you knowing that we do limp between two differing, differing opinions so often in our lives where we might profess you as the true God but treasure in our own hearts idols of various kinds. And Lord, we do pray that we would repent. We would do exactly what Elijah would command us to do. And that we would look upon Jesus Christ, who is the one true God, very God of very God, and very man of very man. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.